Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. With us this morning, we have Bill Frisbee, CEO and founder of Strengthening Leaders, um, a trusted advisor who works with nonprofits to help their leaders grow their businesses and also make a difference in the world. And we have with us Bruce Deal, uh, CEO of City of Ref- Refuge, uh, a longstanding uh, nonprofit in the Atlanta area that has worked with the homeless and disenfranchised, providing housing, medical care, and other support. So thank you so much for, ha- for, uh, for being with us this morning. It's great to be here. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. So I would love to know um, from both of you, what are the trends and um, movements in your industries and areas of expertise that you think are really important for us to be aware of? So, um, Bruce, you want to just let us know what's happening? Uh, well, sure. In the nonprofit world, particularly in compassionate uh, organizations or benevolent organizations, there's a trend towards self-sufficiency that I think is new in the last several years in the fact that uh, resources are being made available to individuals in crisis to help them never have to experience that crisis again. And so that's sort of new over the years. There have been some organizations that have been really good at that. Others have just been providing immediate felt needs, uh, resources for individuals that just help them right at the moment, but then there's no tools and resources and education given to them so that the future is brighter for them. And over the course of the past several years around the country, I've seen that a lot of organizations are turning to that to understand we need to meet the immediate need and help them in their crisis, but we also need to help prepare them so that they don't encounter that same crisis again somewhere down the road. So it's the, the teach a man to fish philosophy? It is. It is. And, and a lot more resources are being made for, available for that. So not only are organizations adopting that philosophy and moving into it, but funders and supporters and volunteers are starting to understand as well Let's do this now so that we don't have to encounter this person later. If we do encounter them later, we're going to encounter them coming back as a donor or a volunteer because they've taken the resources that we've given them. Use that so that their life has become better. Now they can give back to the same community they came out of. Now, you're saying that that's an intention, but it's actually working where you're seeing that a real permanent impact is being made on the lives of the people that you serve. Well, from our standpoint, it is working very dramatically. Uh, Of our 80 employees today at City of Refuge, about 24 of those, uh, 24, 25 of those employees are former residents on our campus that were experiencing homelessness and crisis, lack of employment in their own lives. And so now they're back in their own independent living environments, working for us, uh, getting a salary on a weekly basis, able to take care of their children if they're moms. So we can see it up close and personal on our property that it indeed is working very effectively. Yeah, And that must make you feel really good that you can see the human impact of the work that you do. Well, there's not much more rewarding than finding somebody or encountering somebody at the lowest point in life and giving them the tools and resources and choosing to walk beside them because without somebody to accompany them on the journey, even the resources won't make them successful. We all need folks with us. So taking them by the hand and leading them on that journey and then seeing them become independent, self-sustainable, and giving back is, is the greatest joy that comes in my life right now as it relates to City of Refuge. Wonderful. And what about you, Bill? What are you seeing as you work with these nonprofit CEOs? Well, what we find in a lot of the nonprofits is that they're struggling with their culture to really um, uh, provide a healthy, uh, uh, high-performance organization to meet the needs of the clients and, and the constituents that they're trying to serve. 
uh, a lot of the nonprofits, I think Bruce is an exception to it. He he has a real intuitive understanding of the not just the mission, but also the the the, the business side of the mission. Not not everyone in, in nonprofits get that. They they have a real heart for those that they're trying to serve, and rightfully so. But they sometimes have a bit of a disconnect on the from a leadership and management side of things. And so our our role at strengthening leaders is to come al- come alongside them and to strengthen them in those areas of leadership and management to help them uh, develop a, a healthy, high performing culture that gets great results for those they're trying to serve. So you know, for us, it's really helping organizations that are trying to do good to be great at doing good and especially in those areas that can can kind of hamstring them if they're if they're not paying attention to the to the business side of things. What are what are those areas that you find hamstring them? Well, it, it, like I said, it's oftentimes a cultural issue. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, how is the, is the top level leader and the executive team working together effectively to accomplish the mission? Is there is there a, a spirit and a culture of collaboration uh, of cross-learning that everybody in the, in the room is there to represent the whole of the organization and not uh, not just their particular unit. Uh, and then from a board side, the board development as well oftentimes is lacking, and so we'll lean in in that area. If, if that's the area where the gap exists and we can provide some assistance from a learning standpoint, then that's what we do. At our core, we're a learning organization helping top-level uh, nonprofit executives and boards learn, grow, and develop to be more effective in carrying out their mission. And and Bruce, tell me about how you feel like you've been um, successful in creating a performance culture at City of Refuge, because it is true that nonprofits tend to have a reputation for being maybe a little bit loosey-goosey and you know touchy-feely and let's just sing Kumbaya and save the world. So you're saving the world, but you're definitely obviously have a performance performance well, I, ethic as well. Sure. I think there are a couple of things. Uh, number one, I think the personality of the leader often dictates how it flows down. And so um, I'm very much a driven individual, so I expect that out of those who work with us. And so the fact that we are uh, sharing uh, resources, time, talent, and treasure with those in crisis, if we don't do that with a great deal of excellence, we're not going to set the right example for them and give them the tools they need. Uh, another part of the reason I think we've been able to be successful is that is we happen to be a faith-based organization. That drives a lot of what we do. And so uh, the two key words that I've had for our 19 years of leadership are sort of from a scriptural perspective for me are passion and excellence. And so we either really feel this or we don't. And if you really feel it, then you're going to perform at a high level of excellence, I believe. And I believe as we model excellence both in our individual lives as faith, family, fitness, and finance, those four areas I address on a regular basis. If if I address those in my life, then I can teach that to my leadership team, who then teaches that to the management team beneath them. And then we're able to model that for the residents and the consumers who come on our campus uh, with needs in their own life. And so just setting the bar really high and expecting folks to do that, not over-expecting, but teaching them how to do it, not just setting the expectation and expecting that they'll figure that out on their own, but taking them by the hand. I mentioned earlier taking the folks in crisis by the hand, but I also have to take my team by the hand often and say, we're going over here, and if you've never been there, let me lead you there first so then you can go back and get the folks that work under you and lead there as well. So just creating this expectation on a daily basis. We're going to, we're going to operate with a lot of passion and energy, and we're going to do that in a really excellent fashion in every single thing we do from the appearance of the property 
to the way we talk to people, to the quality of food we serve in our dining hall, everything has to reach a certain level. How many people do you serve in a given, let's say, month or year? Well, th- those are hard numbers to track. About 10,000 a year come through our campus at some level. A um, couple examples. Last year, we, we served 257,000 meals to those in crisis out of our kitchen, 180-degree kitchen. We housed about 1,000 homeless mothers and their children on campus over the course of the year. Uh, but we have a private school. We have culinary arts training program and a vocational training program with auto skills. Uh, you know, the clothing closet and all those kind of things. So between all of the folks who show up on campus at some level of crisis, it's around 10000 a year. And who, who are these people typically that you're, that you're serving? Well, our emphasis is on women and children. Uh, we serve men as well with not quite as many resources as we do women. But women can receive housing. They receive uh, food. They receive clothing. Children's, uh, their children are able to receive the after-school program or daycare if they're not yet in school. They can also go to the private academy. They can receive medical care through our clinic that's on campus, mental health, vision, and dental. So they're folks that are in crisis, either already in homelessness or right at the verge of homelessness, uh, is a lot of the, is the primary majority of our population. But we also have, and I know we'll talk about this some later, we have victims of trafficking and exploitation. We have pregnant teen homes. So it comes from primarily female population, moms, single women with children or without children, uh, that have low support environments that they come from are primarily the folks that we serve on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we talk about the um, sex trafficking thing, I wanted to also introduce Michelle Rickett, who just joined us a moment ago. Um, Michelle is the CEO of She Is Safe, um, who uh, supports women and in uh, around sex trafficking issues uh, on an international level. So, uh, Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, so we always start the show by talking with folks about the trends that are happening in their areas of expertise. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what's happening with, um, with sex trafficking uh, and, in, in, uh, and at for, um, She is Safe? Well, I would say um, the world is awakening to uh, the plight of women and girls around the world. Historically, uh, women and girls have been used as property in much of the developing world, and that was certainly how I awakened to the life calling that we have at She Is Safe. It was, uh, we were living uh, in East Africa and saw that girls were routinely kept out of school to work, marry, or be sold. And the more we delved into it, and this was in the mid-1980s, the more we realized it was a pervasive practice. Well, at that time, we didn't even have the vernacular for modern-day slavery or human trafficking. We just knew fundamentally this was an injustice against women and girls. Well, now the trend is the entire world has awakened to these issues and the devastation that it has not only on families but communities and countries around the world. So uh, the trend is an awakening and I would say it's pretty much top down because of the, uh, the way that the United States has spearheaded the initiative of um, garnering the support of countries together. Basically there's a report card that Almost every country in the world has signed on to the Trafficking in Persons Report Card, and it's tied to human rights abuses. And so if countries get a better placement on that tier, um, 
they actually are eligible for more international aid. So there's a lot of motivation and collaboration, uh, but most of the trafficking occurs on a very grassroots level. So while we're happy to see the trend from the top down, um, I would say the, the next really huge trend that I'm so excited about is the youth Young adults who are coming up, a college age, are just not willing to look away from global human trafficking or locally. They simply must do something. Uh, you see the Indit movement in Atlanta where we saw, what, 30,000 uh, college-age kids rocking the house at the Georgia Dome right. and saying, we're going to end human trafficking in our lifetime. It's a little grandiose, but I get it. Oh, everyone's in sense. So what that means is this movement is going to be growing and maturing. So that's an exciting trend. Yeah, certainly the um, discourse around sex trafficking has been a lot more, a lot louder uh, in the past few years. But is it that there has been more sex trafficking or is it it's growing or is it just that we now are paying attention to it and are willing to talk about it publicly? Well, I do believe that it's um, it has always been a huge issue globally, but with the advent of the Internet, it's easier for organized crime to do what they want to do. But really, last year, uh, the Trafficking in Persons report showed 37 million slaves worldwide, 80% uh, of those female. This year, they say it's 40 million, but they say it's not because of an increase. It's really because of better practices in doing the research. Right. And what about you, Bruce, when you are dealing with... Um, uh, victims of sex trafficking and, and your work at City of Refuge. Are you seeing? Do you think that in, at least in the Atlanta area, um, is it actually growing as a, as a phenomenon, or is it just that we have better reporting, as Michelle was saying? Well, I think it's both. Actually, I think there's certainly better reporting, better research, but it is a growing trend. And and uh, Michelle's uh, alluding to the internet as one of the big things because with the internet, it makes it so much easier for selling to take place and for buying to take place and for ordering of girls or boys or women to take place. And so the, the process has been made much easier and simplified uh, for crime to take place and for um, trafficking and exploitation to take place. So I think it's both. I think uh, we're very much more aware of it because, and the internet uh, uh, contributes to that as well. You know, the, the greater media exposure, uh, social media today, we're able to know more of what's going on. At the same time, I think it is a growing trend. It's an unfortunate trend. Uh, and it is growing among those that are most vulnerable. Um, you know, so those that have the least amount of education, least amount of resource, uh, least amount of hope for the future are the ones that are being exploited in traffic primarily. And because our population over the last several years with the recession we experienced, there's a higher number of folks that fit that category now, the poverty level and, uh, and, and lack of education level. And so they're being trapped into this environment. So I think it's sort of this convergence of a lot of things, to tell you the truth. Um, the need that exists in some people's life, the um, evil that exists in our world and some people's minds bringing those things together, and then the economic issues that we have have driven that as well, as well as the, the social media and Internet things that have come on make it so much easier. And so it's sort of a, the perfect storm, uh, to use a, an analogy, that everything sort of come together. And, and uh, I'm glad there's a lot more exposure, unfortunately, uh, the exposure is revealing the fact that it's a growing trend that's that's one we don't care for. And um, how when did you start to see this as a phenomenon in your work at City of Refuge? Because you've been around before this this uh, 
this uh, discourse on sex trafficking. Well, we started City Refuge 19 years ago. We moved in the neighborhood that we're in now. Which uh, is where? Which is the bluff in Atlanta. So it's 30314, about two miles directly west of the Georgia Dome. So it's Vine City, basically. <laughs> it's Vine City, English Avenue, Hunter Hills, Washington right. Park all come together. And so uh, when we got there, we started to see face-to-face a lot more than I had in the past. I'd heard a lot of stories, but all of a sudden we started to see it literally on the corners. And so, you know, there's a misconception about trafficking that I had, and a lot of folks have, that if you see a young lady on the corner that you automatically assume she's in voluntary prostitution. That's usually not the case. About 70 to 75% of those girls, it seems, are in forced prostitution or being exploited, which is a sort of a, an additional conversation. Uh, but we started to see it face-to-face, and then because we opened our residential program about 10 years ago and started housing women and children, we started hearing the firsthand stories. Uh, that the reason this woman ended up homeless was because at 14 she was kidnapped and then she was forced into trafficking. And at a certain point in time, she became disposable to the handler that that was handling her, her pimp. And so she was just kicked out, whether that's a medical issue or an addiction issue or her mental health broke down or just her physical being. And he just decided she was no longer of use. And so we just started hearing those stories up close and personal and uh, and decided that you know, it's one thing to support other organizations. It's another thing to choose to be the organization in a certain environment, a community to address that. And we decided that was our role since we were there. We already had some level of credibility being around a long time. So about three years ago is sort of when we dove into uh, the trafficking aspect of what we do. And um, what are the demographics of the women that are typically being sex trafficked? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because it depends on which report you read. Overseas, uh, it's a lot more of the underage, and, and Michelle can speak to that more. There's obviously a lot more underage overseas. There's a lot of underage in America. But in the larger cities like Atlanta, Urban Institute released a report recently, and, and so it shows that the, the demographics are all over the board. And so, for instance, we've housed, we house 17 and up, so in our safe house. We don't do the children. There are other organizations in Atlanta that do a really good job with that. We found a gap in those that were 17 and older. And so in the, in the uh, time that we've been housing women that we've rescued from trafficking or exploitation, we've housed women from the age of 17 to the age of 40. And we've housed, it's about 50-50 for us from a racial demographic. So we've had African-American and Caucasian. We've had a few Hispanics and Asians. But primarily in the city of Atlanta, it's about 50-50 on the racial demographic. And the average age of the, of the woman that we're working with, because we choose to work with older, is about 22 years. Mm-hmm. And and for you, Michelle, what what are the demographics of the women that you typically work with? And well, do you work with them here in Atlanta, or are you flying overseas to, to work with them? We are only overseas. Okay. We're in countries that uh, score extremely low on that tier report. Like which so, ones? So uh, we're talking about countries from uh, West Africa through the Middle East and throughout Asia. Half of the slaves in the world today are in India alone. So there's a reason why these particular areas of the world create more vulnerability for women and girls. Poverty is a huge driver, and we do see mostly uh, girls. The average age when a girl is trafficked, say, from Nepal to India, where there are massive brothels. We're talking about a brothel the size of the city, um, 30,000 sex workers. The average age of a girl when she begins is 11 years old, and she will survive about seven years and succumb to sexually transmitted diseases or die in childbirth, which is the number one killer of adolescent girls around the world. So the, the, the demographic generally is a deeply impoverished girl, Asian girl, 
and um, really she believes, her parents believe that they are sending her to get a good job in the hotel industry or to be a nanny somewhere. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a case, and we've been doing this for decades, where a trafficker goes to a family and says, I want to take your daughter to work in a brothel. It's always, here, let me give you some money to help you now. She's going to be sending you money back. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned organized crime, Bruce. And as a business person, these things are endemic, right? So what's the level of sophistication of the, um, the folks who are doing this kind of, or in this kind of business? Because I imagine they must be relatively sophisticated. Well, it's, it's like any other business. There are those with high levels of sophistication. Then there are guys just running from the corner, right? So, uh, but the high levels... Uh, is organized crime. Uh, we, we've worked a lot with undercover and, and with uh, the sex trafficking uh, special groups that come out of law enforcement. And so there are a number of, there are a couple places online, I, I choose not to mention those, there are a couple places online where you go to order the girls in Atlanta or any city. And so in some of the research we've done, we found that uh, the organized crime, you'll call a number, It's say it's an 800 number, but it bounces from Atlanta where you dial to New York, back to San Francisco, to Houston, so it'll bounce six or eight times before somebody finally picks that up so that the call can't be traced. Once the call is, tr- once the call is answered, then they take uh, a cell phone number or an email and respond back to the individual here, again, from a phone that can't be traced. And so uh, this, the, the, the communication aspect is sophisticated and very difficult to track down. And then the organized uh, crime in the local city, and so they're changing out the individuals who are running organized the prostitution and and sex trafficking in the city on a regular basis. So a guy that comes from New York, he may be in Atlanta for a month running a a group of girls, then he moves to California for a month, then he goes back to Connecticut for a month. And so they're changing the population who is running the crime so that the law enforcement can't get familiar with somebody that they see in the same environment over and over. Uh, The communication about how you order, uh, it bounces all over the country. And then they're moving girls a lot as well. The women are being moved. And so they'll have girls that work Atlanta for a certain number of months, and then they move them to another city. And so it's just, it it is a large organization often that's moving the folks around, both the money, the communication, and the girls that are being trafficked. And then on the other hand, you have just Joe on the corner who's decided that he's going to be a pimp, and he finds three or four girls and runs them out of one house. And so that's a lot easier to break down a lot of times, but it's usually a lot more violent as well uh, because of the, of the high level of um, risk that's there for that young lady. If he feels like he's about to be exposed, then he'll inflict damage on her or on those who are going to expose him. Whereas the organized crime, you generally don't find and touch those that are in charge, only those street warriors that they call them that they have on the street, the street lieutenants that are running that for them. Very sophisticated at many levels, but also just very street level of other at, at other levels. Mm-hmm. What about in your work, um, Michelle? How sophisticated are like the the company? Obviously, if you have a thirty thousand person operation, it's pretty pretty big scale and sophisticated. It's large scale, but not necessarily as sophisticated. Um, the fact that we're talking about countries where the average income is thirty to sixty dollars a month and then someone catches wind that they can actually make about a quarter of a million dollars by selling just a few girls if you're they would say if you find someone who is going to be a high priced girl then you can tap into the more sophisticated linkages uh, for trafficking and step into that but the vast majority in the developing world is very grassroots and low level Uh, And part of the issue is the ambiguity about prostitution and law enforcement. 
in a place like India, um, one can be a prostitute if you're 18 years old, though you cannot, it's not legal to run a brothel. So I'm sitting in a brothel talking to a madam, and there are all of these 11-year-old, 12-year-olds, and I bring that up. You know, I understand that prostitution is legal if one is 18, but these are yeah, very young girls. What do you say? They say, well, when they come to us, they have no identity papers. And so the first thing we do is take them to the police station and get new identity that shows they're 18. It's like problem solved. Wow. And so is there any um, strategy or do you know of anybody who's working on actually making either making the business model more costly or creating from an economic standpoint, disincentives to the business of sex trafficking? Because, I mean, unfortunately, where there's an economic incentive, there's going to be somebody who wants to do it. Well, I'm not aware of that, just to be honest. I don't know of how they're doing that. The only, you know, what we're trying to do is, is salvage those that are there. We're also trying to approach and, and address the buyers. And so, you know, if, we could, I mean. yeah, yeah. if we could take away the demand, then the supply obviously decreases. But how do you do that? Uh, you know, in Atlanta, for instance, all the statistics you read, all the reports will tell you that uh, in, in Georgia, 12,400 cash for sex transactions every month, the majority of those in Metro Atlanta. 75% of the cash purchases for sex in Atlanta come from north of 285. So 75% of the purchases that take place downtown in Metro Atlanta, where most of the traffic take place, are men driving from north of 285 downtown. Relatively affluent neighborhoods, right? Re yes, absolutely. Affluent businessmen, husbands, elders in their churches, they're coming downtown to purchase the sex. So how do we stop that? And that's, a, that's the $64,000 question because those neighborhoods don't really want you to address the issue. So the local civic group or rotary club or church certainly doesn't want me to come in and tell them that 75% of the sex buying taking place downtown is coming from their neighborhood, coming from their civic group, from their country club. They just don't want to have that conversation. So while there is a lot um, of additional exposure in the world today about trafficking, it's still about the victim and it's not very much about those who are perpetuating the crime on the victim. Uh, that's a much more difficult conversation. Mm. And um, so in terms of where the, where's the data coming from on who the, who the, the, the demand? The well, there are, a number, there are a number of reports you can read. Urban Institute is the latest that came out with a report. They studied eight major cities in the United States. They're the ones that identified Atlanta's number one right now. There are other reports that identify somewhere in the top two or three, most reports. Uh, the GBI obviously has statistics, the FBI, the undercover sex agencies. So there are a number of agencies that will that all validate that 70 to 75 percent of the buyers are coming from north of 285 downtown. Mm -hmm. And why is it that you think that Atlanta continues to rank in the top one-ish, two-ish, three-ish of cities? Sure. Well, there are a number of reasons. International airport, obviously, busiest airport in the world. So we got a lot of travelers coming in, both from overseas and in the United States, coming to Atlanta for conferences, huge conference city and convention city. So visitors are coming in all the time. Uh, that, that always attracts folks that are looking to buy sex, of course. Uh, Atlanta has been termed, in a number of reports I read, as the number one runaway destination for teenagers in America. For some reason, we're sort of in the south. You know, we've got warm weather most of the time. You can jump on Greyhound or you catch a, you know, a truck coming out of anywhere just about to get to Atlanta. So there's a higher population of runaway teenagers in Atlanta than most cities in America. Those teenagers are, are prime victims that get sucked into this kind of environment. 
Um, the foster care system contributes some, not, a, not intentionally, of course, but when folks age out of foster care at 19 years of age, many of them have zero support system when they age out. And so they find themselves on the streets, which lends themselves to either addiction, alcoholism, which then ends up often in trafficking or exploitation in order to support the habit that they find themselves in. Multiple reasons, I think, is what cause it, primarily because we're this international city, big convention city, bunch of teenagers running away here and the foster care system all sort of merged together. Now, are most of the, the victims, are they, um, they're not foreigners, right? They're not like the people being, um, like slaves being imported from foreign countries, or are they? I don't know. Well, Atlanta's not nearly as big on the foreign importation of girls as San Francisco, for instance, or New York even. There, there are other cities that have a higher population of foreign girls being brought in to be trafficked. Uh, our experience in Atlanta has been that the vast majority are folks from the United States, you know, either from the South primarily or have been brought here from, you know, out West or up North. So most of the girl, most of the women that we deal with are citizens of the U S mm-hmm. and for both um, Bruce and Michelle, I would love to hear about like the solution. So we've talked a lot about the problem and things like that. Um, obviously you guys are providing support to the victims, but um, where, is law enforcement and some of these aid agencies in terms of providing a long-term solution like, you know, the, as you mentioned, you know, ending human trafficking in our lifetime? Well, for She is Safe, we've really looked at some of the root causes. How is it that 80% of all slaves are female? How is it that 98% of all sex slaves are female? If we can understand that, we can get to demolishing those root causes. And for where She is Safe works, what that means is going to those most vulnerable places. We can tell you where the busiest human trafficking corridor is in the world, and it's between China, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, and showing up in those very places where the traffickers would go to get the girls, showing up and providing families with alternative income opportunities has been a huge uh, shift in the way that She is Safe works. We have been able to identify villages where there's, there are no girls over the age of 12. Once they hit 13, they're sold by someone in the community. And we've basically gone in with information, gather all the families and let them know that probably when your girls are being taken, they're not into some dignified industry. And it's a heartache to you. You are needing girls. When you need girls to um, marry your sons, you have to go and buy one somewhere else. So there, are, there is a better way to do this. And we would like to help invest in this village in a community development effort if you will pledge to no longer sell your girls. And we find the local women become the drivers for that initiative. They become pre-law enforcement. We, we were in the Nuakot district of Nepal. Uh, identified 300 families who had all sold their girls, and but they have 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds. And we said, we're here on behalf of these girls. We would like to train some families in animal husbandry and um, with this pledge. Well, some of the women said, um, well, it's going to take a lot of vigilance on our part. We thought, well, 
that's great. How is that going to work? You're women. You have no authority. You have no uh, muscle. You don't have weapons. And they said, we'll just go house to house and tell every family that it's now illegal to sell their daughters. With There's a veiled threat there that you will be prosecuted. Um, within four weeks of that initiative, uh, we had some traffickers come into the village and take four girls. The women found out about it. They contacted Border Patrol, described the men. They knew them. And the girls, the guys were taken into custody and prosecuted. The girls were returned to the village. Big caution to any other family in that village who thinks that they can get by with selling a girl now. So we're creating a wider and wider hedge of protection, more and more of these extremely high-risk villages through economic empowerment. Great, great, great. Go ahead, Drew. Yeah, well, you know, in the States, many of the same things, uh, unfortunately, down here in the States. And so for us, it's not just addressing the sex trafficking issue. It's what contributes to that. And so uh, in our neighborhood, for instance, 37% of our families live beneath the poverty level, you know, 35% graduation rate. Uh, so there are a lot of contributing factors that end up with a young woman looking for a way to make money, looking for some value system, uh, uh, some affirmation from a male. You know, often their, their pimp is also known as their boyfriend uh, in the hood. And so, you know, creating environments and creating situations that bring greater levels of education, greater levels of income uh, potential, greater levels of affirmation from positive role models, all of those are things that have to be addressed as a nation in order to help to solve this problem. Too often, I think we get a little bit of tunnel vision. We see one problem and we try to address just the problem. But the problem is usually just a result of other problems. So it's a symptom that there are multiple problems taking place. And I think that's what sex trafficking is. I mean, there's obviously this, uh, you know, depraved mentality of folks who would prey on others. That contributes, but there are a lot of other contributing factors as well. Poverty, lack of education, lack of uh, jobs that pay enough to have a livable wage are certainly things that contribute that we can address as organizations, as businesses, as a community that I think then starts to address the, the uh, exploitation and trafficking issue at a pretty deep level. Right. So you change the incentive structure where there are better options and then the sex trafficking is no longer the best game in town. Absolutely. Great. Well, one of the things that um, I think is really important is we always talk about relationships on on the show and all of you guys know each other. You, um, Bill, you know, you've worked with Bill and then... Uh, Michelle and Bruce, you also work together and partner on, on the sex trafficking issue as well. So I would love to know from your, um, Michelle and, and Bruce, how do you work together to combat this, this issue? Well, that's a new relationship. We're excited about it. Bill facilitates uh, the leader-to-leader group and, and that he talked about earlier. And it's a, a monthly meeting where about 16 CEOs of nonprofits in Atlanta come together around the table and spend a day together once a month. <laughs> and we share about our successes, but more importantly, we share about our challenges. And so we will present opportunities for discussion and have those uh, conversations together. And through that meeting uh, on a monthly basis that I joined about a year or 18 months ago now, Michelle and I met each other there. And uh, obviously with her emphasis on sex trafficking around the world on an international level and our new venture about three years in domestic, it seems to make a lot of sense. And we've started those conversations and partnership to address that together. And so uh, Michelle, well, I'll let her speak, but she, you know, she'll say that folks, when she presents what she does, she'll say, well, why don't you address sex trafficking in the United States? You know, and so she'll say, now she's able to say, well, I do through my partnership with City of Refuge. 
we're able to give demographics and statistics and information not only about Atlanta but about India and Nepal and other places now as a result of relationship and listen to the, uh, to the statistics that uh, Michelle shares. So it seems like a natural thing to walk together rather than being insular into those things. Rather than me try to do my thing, her do hers, we walk together. We address trafficking around the world. Donors, for instance, like that. They like the multifaceted approach. They can see you're not just addressing one issue, you're addressing multiple issues in multiple locations. We're also able to share ideas, success, and failures. And, and small things along the way, um, you know, if one of us is really strong in development and raising money, we're able to share those resources with the other. If one of us is really good in recruiting volunteers, we're able to share that. And that's been the benefit of Leader to Leader that Bill leads as we sit around the table. With, if you have 16 CEOs, some are really good in A, some really good in B, some really good in C. And if we're willing to lay down our own identities for a moment and join hands, we think that we can make a greater impact in the world at large. And that's the reason that we partner with Michelle. And, and Bill, how do you support these CEOs and in, in continuing to make, make a difference? What's, you know, what, what are your top three things that you think are really critical as you, as you work with them? Well, what we find is, is that for many, they just are isolated. And so bringing them into a community of peers is a, a vital issue for them because that's where they get this cross-pollination, this opportunity to learn from one another. Even though they may be in different arenas of the nonprofit world, some are uh, international in scope, uh, like She is Safe, and some are, are more uh, urban uh, inner city kind of uh, uh, initiatives. Some are in foster care, some adoption. Some are in education, so we have higher ed represented, uh, healthcare, a number of different um, uh, areas of expertise. And when they come together, there's an opportunity to learn from one another and kind of cross those boundaries and find new paradigms for tackling some of the challenges that they face. So really just bringing them all together and letting them engage on issues that are they're contextual, they're, they're their issues. They're their challenges, they're their questions, and, and their concerns, and they're, they're dealing with them currently. You know, so it's timely, and it's contextual. And then in that sense of community, it really creates a, a, a dynamic, a synergy, where they can find solutions to the, some of their toughest challenges. And that's what we love to see happen. And, and you know, they're all in their role as a CEO or president for a reason. They've got the they've they've got the background. They've got the experience. They they know what to do. But sometimes they just need some input from some outside objective um, uh, leaders that are also at their level and understand their world and their reality. And so uh, that's that's part of what we try to do in these communities of uh, executive learning communities. Do you ever get depressed or or hopeless and feel like you know when you're dealing with you know homelessness, sex trafficking, you know? foster like all these different like the the issues of the world how do you stay hopeful that you know that you can that that you or we or all anybody can make a difference well uh, in in the groups that i work with all of the leaders are faith-based and so our hope is in christ alone we we believe that that he holds the answer to the issues that all of these leaders and all their organizations are dealing with and some of these great, largest, most significant challenges that we face in our culture and our community. And so, uh, but we also know that it takes a lot of hard work 
So faith and work go together hand in hand. And all of these organizations are really on mission. And so it, it's, it, it's, it's heartbreaking when you hear the stories that you've heard from Michelle and Bruce this, this morning. I mean, it, it's, it just pulls at your heart every day. But the reality is there are men and women who are out there trying to make a difference, and they are making a difference. And that gives me great hope. You know, every day when I see not only the, the uh, we have uh, two groups here in Atlanta, we have two of these groups in Dallas, and we're growing them in different parts of the country. And these are all are men and women who are absolutely focused. They're passionate about uh, their relationship with Christ. They're compassionate for people, and they really are willing to sacrificially give of themselves to make a difference in their lives, not just in their physical needs, in their uh, uh, but and their circumstances, but also to see their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So that's, that's, that's where we find our hope. Mm. And so all of the, the nonprofit CEOs that you work with are Christians and faith, yeah, faith Yeah, okay. and as a firm, I mean, we have, we have some clients that are not faith-based nonprofits, but uh, about 90-some percent of our clients are in that area. And all of our executive learning communities uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, as well as Atlanta, are faith-based leaders, and and that's by choice. I mean, from a from um, a business standpoint, it could it'd be more lucrative. I, I would I'm sure to pursue uh, these you know, developing learning communities and 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 our bill of work uh, in private sector. Uh, we certainly have the capacity to do that, and we do that on occasion. But our our passion, our mission, is to come alongside these. Uh, nonprofits and especially faith-based nonprofit leaders and strengthen them, their executive teams, and, and their boards. And, and especially, like Bruce mentioned earlier, you know, that he, you know, it's not just what they're doing in their communities, but they're reaching, he, he's taking his team and leading them effectively. They're there because they are, you know, they're, they're there for the cause, and, and they want to make a difference. They want to have an impact. But they need leaders who are willing to not just tell them what to do, but show them what to do. People will do what they, their leaders do, not just what they say. And that's why it's great to work with, uh, with leaders like Michelle and Bruce and others who are saying, hey, we really want to do this uh, with excellence because the, the, the cause is too great. The challenge is too important. People need to be help. They need to be served. They need to have a, a hand up, not just a hand out. And how do you see the, the, that the faith actually shows up in the, in the day-to-day leadership of, you know, in the organizations? Well, I think the principles from Scripture are significant as far as what effective leadership really looks like. And uh, I think it comes down to, to the bottom line is that you know, that we need to, you know, uh, we're commanded to love God and to love people. And that doesn't just take place just for those we're trying to serve. It also has to be applied within the organization. So how we care for, how we develop, how we nurture our own people is going to have an impact on how they care for and how they uh, uh, serve and support those constituents that they're, are being attempted to be served. And so Scripture's full of, uh, of principles that help us to 
to really be effective. And I think one of the things that we find is that, you know, that we're better together than we are alone. And Bruce mentioned that about, you know, how these two organizations are finding a new um, pathway together and in, in finding some areas where they can partner. And, and Scripture speaks about that, you know, it, it, uh, the, the, in Ecclesiastes it talks about a three-plied cord being stronger still. So, you know, having Christ at the center of our lives and, and so that we're being the leader that God would have us to be uh, and reflecting Him in the organization and then helping others really cultivate their relationship with Christ shows up in how they serve and support others. It's a sacrificial ministry. And it's one that these men and women are willing to uh, to to make day by day, and it's it's a it's it's not a little thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very significant work, and it comes at great cost. And what about uh, business leaders who are not Christian um, mm-hmm. but are altruistic and want to help and things like that? How how can some of these principles translate for them? Well, it's good business sense. <laughs> One one of the keys is that in, from our world is you know how you treat your people is how they're going to treat your customers, uh, and I think there are a lot of um, of uh, business leaders who aren't particularly necessarily Christian, but they begin to understand that uh, that these principles really apply and work. There's there's not just are they biblical, but there's a lot of common sense there as well. It just works. Great. And what about um, Bruce and, and Michelle? I would love for you to, to answer that question about staying hopeful, right? Um, I imagine that you deal with a lot of fairly dark and um, morbid issues on a daily basis. Um, how do you stay hopeful, Michelle? Well, I am, uh, I call myself a life change junkie. So I get so excited when I see one person who has a pathway to a new life. <laughs> And they're accessing that. So when Bruce talks about 10,000 people who are served every year, better off. Well, for us, we know the studies show that if you change the life of one woman or girl, you're going to immediately impact 26 other individuals. So there's a multiplying effect to that goodness. Uh, We prevent, rescue, or restore about 15,000 individual women or girls every single year times 26. That's so exciting to me. And once a woman or girl has this sense of dignity and purpose and that she can uh, have a whole new life with the help of heaven, she will not go back, and her daughters will not be the ones on the street. So we've essentially affected the next generation as well. I, I can't think of anything more exciting. Yeah, with the, you know, 19 years in, we have thousands of success stories now. So I have men and women and sons and daughters that uh, I have young men that we started with when they were 10 years old who are now college graduates and have a job and are married and have children. And so we're able to look back. And so that's one of the ways I stay driven and, and uh, keep my hope is by looking at the success. I rarely focus on the failure. And uh, so just focus on, on the success. And, and one of the things that uh, doesn't always come across, I think, from nonprofits is, you know, our, our uh, mission statement is to bring light, hope, and transformation. That's not only to those that are in crisis, but that's to our volunteers and to our donors and to our partners from corporate and business and churches. And so your question about faith earlier, uh, you know, we host about 6,000 volunteers a year on campus from every kind of background you can think of. So some of those are faith, some of those are corporate, some of those are business, some of those are agnostic. I mean, we have folks from every environment uh, mentally, 
uh, educationally and faith uh, perspective that come on campus. Well, we think when they come on campus and they're able to see all of our programs operate with the passion and excellence that I talked about earlier, that gives them hope. That gives them a belief that transformation can take place not only in people's lives that are identified as in crisis, but maybe in places of pain in their own life. And so they may come in with this facade that looks well put together, but they've got this own place of struggle, whether that be in their marriage or with their children or their own career. And being in a place of hope and healing, that can translate into their life as well. And so that's one of the things that we stay focused on is not just the demographic of those who walk on campus saying they need help, but those who come on campus to help often drive away or ride away uh, having been helped themselves. And that's one of the motivations that keeps me going. Wonderful. Well, for those of us who are, you know, listening, um, who want to do something, right? You can listen to these statistics and you just feel helpless. Is there anything that the average person listening to this interview can do to to help? Well, from a city refuge, and and I'll let Michelle speak, you know, it's uh, time, talent, and treasure, right, are those three words that we all use. And so, uh, we're always looking for volunteers to be on campus. With the number of residents we house, the number of folks in our schools, in our auto center, our culinary, we always need great folks on campus that are bringing a certain skill set, whether that's gardening or carpentry or after-school help with children or finance classes or parenting classes. Tons of ways to volunteer. Uh, gifts in kind, so folks that donate things that are of essence to people's life, so toiletries or clothing or vehicles that we can use then to empower the folks that graduate our program. And then, of course, third, all of us can invest at some level financially to support programs that do good work. So those are the three things that that I think we should uh, all think about. In addition to that, I think it's really important that folks educate themselves on the issues of their community. And so, you know, folks can hear a radio broadcast or they'll see a news story and they'll be emotionally moved for a moment and they'll make a quick investment in an organization or somebody, but they don't really know why that situation arose. And so I think knowing what's going on in your own community and city at large is important. So I always love when uh, folks who show up or who give to our organization have done some research and understand the, the issue, and they know that they're investing in a bigger issue, not just in a feeding program or not just in a housing program. They're actually investing in changing a culture of a community. Great. What about you, Michelle? Well, for She Is Safe, we're located in Roswell. That's where the headquarters is. So having people come in to volunteer is wonderful, mostly in the administrative uh, area. Since most of our actual work is done overseas, there isn't that much opportunity. Although I would say uh, more than half of our staff of 21 have come to us, first of all, as volunteers. And they get to know us better, we get to know them, and then when something opens up, we want to tap into those people who really have a love for what we do and who are qualified as well. We do a lot, as Bruce mentioned, with awareness raising. Uh, We have uh, books and we keep our website up so that people who want to learn about global human trafficking and the issues, they have a a place where they can go. Uh, So we try and keep the most current information up there for them. Right now, of course, uh, with the earthquake in Nepal, anytime there's a disaster like that, um, the incidence of traffic trafficking in persons is on the rise. So we are pulling people from all over uh, the region that are our coworkers and uh, colleagues and friends into the areas of Nepal that are many of the places that were hardest hit are underserved outside of Kathmandu. So we have an emergency response that people could uh, act on today. 
Great, great, great. And in terms of um, new events, um, new happenings at City of Refuge, Bruce, you want to tell us about stuff that people might want to be in, might be interested in? Well, sure. Yeah, uh, we just opened our own um, safe house uh, about 13 months ago. And so we've housed uh, in 13 months those that are being rescued from traffic and exploitation in Atlanta. Uh, we've housed about 204 women in 13 months. That's an ongoing volunteer opportunity, ongoing funding opportunity. Uh, we recently opened in October of last year our team pregnancy home, which houses uh, six pregnant teens and six teens who've had their baby up for the first year of the baby's life. Again, great opportunities for volunteerism to come and help. We have we keep all those girls engaged in their academic pursuits, so tutors and mentors in that area, child care, all kind of outings that we can do. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Uh, upcoming in uh, at City of Refuge, if somebody wanted to visit one of our large events, October's always our biggest event of the year, our gathering it's called, and that's October 22nd this year, and that'll be on our website shortly where folks can start to purchase tickets and come down, and that night we tell stories of transformation and sort of gives a bigger picture. Uh, so that's up and running, and, uh, and then like I said, there are ongoing volunteer opportunities every day at City of Refuge, and so a lot of things happening on a regular basis with population of almost 300 women and children living on campus plus the other programs taking place. It's a beehive of activity all the time that folks could find themselves uh, pretty excited about, I think. Wonderful. Michelle? Well, our, our expanding work is in the economic empowerment through uh, gathering groups of women. We call them transformation groups. So it's a year-long program that we're able to roll out. We're looking at the Middle East now. We have successfully run this for over a decade in India. So basically, we illiterate women who are in these high-risk communities join a group. They meet every single week. Um, they learn... First of all, literacy skills. Most of them can't write their own name. They learn uh, vocational opportunities. They also begin, under our training, uh, saving and lending pool. And then those women learn how to invest every single week together. And when they get to a certain um, uh, level of income, they become each other's loan officers. So women who all their lives have been told they're worthless, they can't learn, are now loan officers, and they become pre-law enforcement groups, uh, going to other women, other homes in the communities to talk about protecting girls from being sold into marriage or some other industry. So this um, we run right now about 4,500 individual women through these transformation groups every year, and they go on to start banks and businesses, and others come to them to borrow money. So they're not paying money back to um, another bank. They're paying themselves back. So it's tremendous empowerment that multiplies on itself. So that's the most exciting work that we have going forward. And I think you have a book, right? A book that just came out recently? Yes, we have uh, the book Forgotten Girls at the end of 2014. Um, it's an expanded edition of an earlier work that has updated stories and statistics about girls around the world through firsthand interviews. Um, but the book is getting at those deeper issues that cause girls to be so very vulnerable that they can be sold. And it won the Reader's Choice Award for InterVarsity Press in December. So we're very excited. And we've, we've um, reworked the book a little bit so that 
it's especially tailored for those who are in small groups and want to have a discussion guide, prayer and action points that they can uh, begin immediately to really take action. Right. And what about you, Bill? Anything new at Strengthening Leaders that you want to let us know about? Well, we're just growing and expanding uh, because the need just seems to be so great for uh, top-level um, nonprofit leaders to c- come together in these executive learning communities. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, we started the first one about 18 months ago, the one that uh, Bruce and Michelle are in. And um, it's definitely been one of those uh, situations where we, we knew that it had real value. Uh, we we thought that this would meet a, a real need, and it's been kind of an exceedingly abundantly more than we ever asked or thought or imagined. <laughs> so that's been really exciting. But we're we're moving quickly toward about 64 leaders in these groups, and uh, probably going to be doubling that over the next year or so. Wonderful. And if folks want to get in touch with you, Bill, how do how can they do that if they've they're interested in finding out a little bit more about strengthening leaders or anything that you've mentioned today? Yeah, they can write to me at bill at strengtheningleaders.com. It'd probably be the best way to reach me. And Bruce? Yeah, cityofrefugeatl.org is our website that gives an overview of all the programs. You can sign up to volunteer there. And I'm simply Bruce at cityofrefugeatl.org. And Michelle. SheIsSafe.org, and we have an info at SheIsSafe.org, and you just mentioned my name. It'll come right to me. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for a very engaging and very important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com. 